The problem with that kind of, that's just one example from Bloomberg of this sort of Midas mindset is what I would call it. You know, um, it's about money, work, freedom, basically. That's what life's about. Um, fun too, when you've got free time. Um, the problem though with that kind of reporting and that kind of messaging that our elites are often giving now to the, you know, to the general population is that for most people, it's not true. Join the best in the movement. It's conservative conversations with ISI, educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Tom Saroof. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Brad Wilcox, who is professor of sociology and director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He earned his undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia, where he was a Jefferson Scholar, and his PhD in sociology at Princeton University. Prior to coming to UVA, he held research fellowships at Princeton and Yale. He is the author and co-editor of five books, including Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. That's the new one that's forthcoming from Collins and Gender and Parenthood, Biological and Social Scientific Perspectives from the Columbia University Press in 2013. He's published articles on marriage, cohabitation, parenting, and fatherhood in various scholarly journals, and his research is featured regularly in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, NPR, National Review, Desiree News, and other media outlets. So, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Tom, it's good to be with you today. Before we begin our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission is Educating for Liberty. If you'd like to join us in fulfilling this mission, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So, Brad, I would not consider myself an expert in family studies, family policy, cohabitation, the birth rate, things like that. But I'm a young man. I'm considering the prospect of marriage. I believe that's my vocation. And as these topics become more prevalent in conservative circles, at least the conservative circles I run in, I've been thinking somewhat about them. And something I hear if I were to bring up in conversation, either with folks uh, who might be of the left or maybe even our libertarian friends, um, if you talk about sub-replacement birth rates or cratering, cratering marriage and family formation rates, compared to our even just sort of recent past, the question you get is, why do you care? Which I think has a certain moral uh, strike against the idea that we would care about these things, that this is, a, this is up for individuals to take care of themselves. But from as, you, as we kick things off, as someone who has devoted your life or a lot of your career to studying these things in a serious way, uh, what made you get interested in this topic or in these issues? So why do you care about this, uh, about these topics? Yeah, good questions, Tom. So I was raised by a single mother, and I think in college here at the University of Virginia, actually, began to come to this sort of realization that, you know, for the average guy, marriage is an institution that connects men to uh, their children. And that insight is, of course, not original to me. It's, it's a reoccurring theme in a lot of the classic anthropology um, that has been written about, you know, men and family, you know, the sort of this idea that marriage is kind of the glue that binds men to their children and families. So that was sort of the genesis of my interest in this area. And I've been sort of beating the drum for about 20 years now, kind of to try to underline for, you know, the, the public, um, square all the ways in which marriage matters for children 
And I still beat that drum um, pretty regularly. But Tom, to be honest, as I've been kind of teaching uh, college students and kind of looking around at the statistics when it comes to young adults like yourself, I've become a lot more concerned about the trajectory of family formation and marriage, both here in the U.S. and really around the globe. We're just seeing cratering marriage and fertility rates in South Korea, in Japan, in Taiwan, in Spain, in Greece. It just goes on and on. And we're seeing some of that now unfolding in the United States. And it's not going to be as bad as Japan or as bad as South Korea, but we're definitely headed in a direction where fewer and fewer young adults today will end up getting married. We think about probably at least 25% of young adults your age will never marry. And that's just record demographic territory. And we're seeing two fertility in the U.S. fall to record lows as well. So we're about 1.7 right now. Probably will go down to 1.6, you know, pretty soon. Now, the question is, well, who cares? You know, what's the big deal? Um, you get that from a lot of sort of smart people, particularly folks who are more on the left or more libertarian, like you were saying. And I could kind of respond to that question, Tom, by talking about, you know, the economy. I could mention that we're going to see a shrinking workforce that's going to affect our GDP. I'm, I could talk about, you know, looming fiscal challenges facing the federal government, you know, not having enough taxpayers to, you know, pay into Social Security and to Medicare. You know, all those things are, I think, relevant and important. They're going to have a big impact on the future of this country, both economically and politically, no doubt. But I think for me as a, as a husband and father, what's a lot more, I think, important is just underlining to people that yes, of course, there are exceptions what I'm going to say in just a second here. But for the average man and the average woman, what we do see is that married parents today in America report much more meaning, direction, and happiness in their lives than their unmarried and childless peers. Um, and my suspicion, my hypothesis is that in a future that may be even more anomic, as a lot of our civic institutions are struggling today, and as we're a more secular society today, and also as we're a more economically unequal you know, place today as well, in this newer economic and technological and civic context, my hypothesis going forward is that marriage and having kids, having a family of your own to be with you and for you as you move into middle age, and especially as you become older, will become even more important than it is right now in 2023. So my pitch about marriage and family is to sort of have people have a little more enlightened self-interest, if nothing else, and recognize that they're not always going to be young and reasonably healthy. And um, they're not necessarily always going to have you know friends or with them and for them as well. And so for most of us, I think, having a spouse and kids is just enormously important, particularly in, I would say, midlife and midlife. But you can't, you can't be married with kids, you know, at age, you know, 52 like myself, unless you, you know, do things um, in your 20s and 30s to, you know, to become married and to have children. Right. You have to build it first. And you said so many things that I think we'll touch on over the course of the interview. But something that struck out while you were speaking was you said for the average man and the average woman. And I think one of the thing, one of the Part of the subtitle of the new book when it's coming out is why we must defy the elites. So what is the average man and the average woman compared to what the elites are telling us to do? 
Right. So I, I'm thinking about kind of like a, you know, a Midas mindset. And we all know the story of King Midas who, you know, got his one wish and you know, used that to turn things into gold and, you know, thought that would make him happy. And, you know, he kind of got th- thought the glory and, you know, the status and, and, and the value of the gold would be great. And of course, um, ended up, you know, turning his daughter into um, an inanimate object and was absolutely horrified and then came to his senses and, and you know, got rid of the that old, you know, that orientation to mammon, so to speak. So I think right now in our society, and this is not just the U.S., but a lot of developed countries, we're kind of more in that sort of minus mindset, kind of focusing on on money, on work, glory, um, you know, for ourselves. Um, and we're not really kind of appreciating how much, um, you know, we're social animals, as Aristotle taught us. And, you know, for most of us, our friendships and especially our family relationships end up being more important. So that's one of the big challenges right now, Tom, is that um, people have been getting the message, you know, from teachers, professors, you know, the news, parents even, that, you know, they should be focusing all of their primary attention on, you know, education, work, and, you know, success in one way or another, especially in the middle upper classes. So, that message, for instance, came through in a recent um, piece in Bloomberg that was reporting that women who didn't get married and didn't have kids were much richer than women who had gotten married and had children. Um, and then also that Bloomberg piece spotlighted a number of single childless women who were flourishing, not just financially, but also kind of, you know, personally and emotionally. The problem with that kind of, that's just one example from Bloomberg of this sort of Midas mindset is what I would call it. You know, um, it's about money, work, freedom, basically. That's what life's about. Um, Fun, too, when you've got free time. Um, The problem, though, with that kind of reporting and that kind of messaging that our elites are often giving now to the, you know, to the general population is that for most people, it's not true. You know, number one, married women with kids are richer than single childless women on average. So... Even that sort of the financial piece in that Bloomberg piece was completely false. But also the idea of finding like, you know, four or five really happy single childless women and giving them a platform at Bloomberg kind of undercut the truth, which is that for most women, being married with kids is a lot more meaningful, certainly, and even happiness inducing than being single and childless. So that's one thing. In terms of defining elites, you've got to recognize that this idea that we should infinitely postpone or forego marriage and kids, bad idea for most people. But there's also kind of a profoundly individualistic kind of a me first mentality you get on a lot of elite journalism and academic work these days and even obviously in the pop culture as well that kind of encourages you to approach marriage and family with kind of more of a me first mentality. So one example here is that the Atlantic ran a piece and uh, Susie Orman, the sort of financial guru, uh, also articulated this idea that you should kind of basically keep your money separate when you're getting married. So you have his money and her money and you might have a common account, but just kind of like you have your own stuff going on the side financially. And you know, this is it's 2023, you know, let's let's go with the times, right? So, um, and I've both done some descriptive analyses and seen other people look at you know, this empirically and find that folks who are actually pooling their money are happier and more stably married. But I think that the smart progressives would sort of come back to me and say, well, yeah, of course, the kinds of people who pool their money might be more religious or conservative. And, you know, that's what's happening. It's not really how you handle your money. It's no big deal, Brad, right? Um, But there's a recent uh, study just published this year um, by a scholar 
um, at uh, Northwestern and some colleagues indicating that when they randomly assigned joint accounts to a decent sample of newlyweds and then randomly assigned separate accounts to a different sample of newlyweds and then tracked them over two years, basically, what they found was that um, there was almost no decline in marital quality for the couples who were assigned joint accounts. And that was striking because typically in the first two years, you're kind of adjusting and there are some you know, difficulties, challenges, and there's you know, a decline of some extent in marital quality. By contrast, the couples who randomly assigned the separate accounts saw a pretty marked decline in their marital happiness. So it was an experimental approach to looking at the sort of classic norm of when you get married, you pool your finances. Um, and it showed us that the more traditional way, you know, approach, which is based upon kind of establishing kind of a we first approach to money, you know, a kind of team oriented approach to finances that's congruent with the broader tradition of financial arrangements in married life. Um, that was the more effective way. And, and it was so because I think it, it basically forces people to have conversations about what they're doing with the money. It gives them a sense of a common, you know, financial identity as a couple. And it helps them, I think, sort of to imagine a future together financially that, you know, reinforces the strength um, and also the stability of their marriage. So that's just kind of one example of how, you know, we're getting a lot of elite messaging, Tom, telling us to kind of look out for ourselves in married life. Same thing about divorce. Like, you know, sure, you should be trying to stay married for life. But, you know, if things get difficult, if someone else comes along who is especially, you know, engaging, you know, divorce might be, you know, okay. Um, what people don't realize is that couples who have that mentality going into marriage, you know, um, and they're getting that from a lot of different voices in the culture today, elite culture today, um, including I've got pieces that I talk about in my book, like from the New York Times and the Spirit. Um, if you have that mentality going into marriage, not only are you more likely to get divorced, and of course, no surprise there for anyone, I think, but you're more likely to be um, less happy in your marriage as well. And that's because at some level, you know, you're not fully vested or your partner's not fully vested in the marriage. And that is not conducive to forging a strong and satisfying marriage. That is a brief, brief follow-up. And then I think there's, you said a lot about the economics. and I'd love to get more into that uh, family formation. But what about the prenup, the prenuptial agreement? Specifically, I think it's a way for people of maybe of means if there's a or if there's a significant uh, inequality between one spouse and the other, the prenup is a way to protect that one person's finances against a potentially um, maybe predatory partner. But at the same time, it's that same sort of like lack of full investiture and the, the risk taking that that marriage really is and the sort of adventure that comes along with that, but also the risk. So what I don't know if you've seen any data or if you have any... Uh, yeah, so I have a section on, on prenups in the book as well. And yes, the basic story there is, again... Um, folks who have prenups are less happy and they're more likely to be worrying about divorce in their future. Um, so, and again, so another way to kind of think about this, Tom, is to sort of think about, I've been involved in like probably thousands of debates over the years about whether or not marriage as a legal institution matters. You know, is it matter for kids, adults, you know, if they're married, if their parents are married, all that stuff. And fine, we can have the debate. But the point I'm making in the book in part is it's not just about whether or not you're legally married. It's whether or not you and your spouse embrace the classic norms associated with marriage. 
And so if you're all in, if you adapt what I call a family first approach to marriage, where it's about we're, we're a team, we're a couple, we're, we're working together, you know, financially, we're working together practically to keep, you know, our common life together, to keep our, our kids on the right track, all that stuff. If you've got this team mentality and you're all in, your odds of flourishing and being stably married are just much, much higher. If you're kind of hedging your bets a little bit, you know, you're kind of keeping an eye on some people at the office, it might be a good backup option for you. If you're financially thinking about, you know, keeping some of your assets, you know, secure in case your marriage goes south, um, you're just much more likely to go down that road of, you know, um, of dissatisfaction and uh, ending in divorce court. That's not shocking. And I mean, the elite messaging, even if they're not outright saying it, like, you know, Chelsea Handler is skiing in a bikini, you know, cheering how she's not married and talking about how she's never gets, gets sick. And it, it is a very, it's almost a perpetual childhood. Um, but even if it's not actually championing, don't get in selling us, don't get married, they get divorced all the time. All of these celebrities divorce, remarried, divorce. So it sort of sets that pattern as our um, ideals and not particularly good ideals in most cases. But um, on the economics of marriage, one of the big debates these days, especially a lot of people look to Hungary and they're um, very, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, um, but their family policy, they're giving a lot of money to young families, loan forgiveness, um, even paying people to have more kids, they have larger allowances and things like that, giving loans. Um, and that trying as a way of trying to arrest or reverse the declining marriage rates, the declining birth rates. Uh, and critics point to that as this is a multi-billion dollar, there's a many billion dollar expenditure. It has a very marginal um, impact. Really what we're talking about is cultural shifts that have led to these things. And that's sort of what we were just talking about. But I'm wondering where you come in on that issue versus it's more cultural spending billions of dollars. This is not a great this is not a great investment, uh, especially given you know 31 trillion dollars in debt or whatever it is. Versus actually, no, the economics of marriage are is it's hidden data that's not talked about enough. What do you sort of think about all of that? Well, it's true that Hungary has made some pretty dramatic investments in uh, in family life, and they have seen an uptick um, in marriage and a decline in divorce um, and an uptick in fertility. It's not as, um, particularly in countries on the fertility front, it's not as, you know, maybe dramatic as, um, you know, the proponents of it would like it to be. Um, but we have seen... Um, that kind of in the wake of a lot of these, um, you know, programs, um, they've gone from about 40,000 marriages in 2010 to about 62,000 marriages in 2019, for instance. Um, to put it in different terms, the marriage rate doubled from 2010 to 2021. Um, so that is, you know, that is impressive. Um, and when it comes to sort of like, you know, fertility rates, so they're definitely up from um, basically, you know, around 2010, um, but they're not kind of up much more than the pattern in Croatia or in Romania, two other countries that are obviously close, uh, close by in Hungary. So I think we're still kind of, in a sense, the jury empirically is still out on whether or not 
the Hungarian model is um, working as well as they um, would like it to work. Um, but it is true at the same time that, um, you know, basically um, the indicators have moved in the direction that Hungary was hoping that they would. Now, in terms of the fiscal constraints that we here in the United States face, um, you know, I think we can definitely think about what's sort of the most um, prudent way, if you will, to um, kind of target U.S. policy in the direction of um, encouraging marriage and encouraging childbearing. And my colleague Lyman Stone here at the Super Family Studies has, has done a piece that kind of reviews the kinds of policies that could be helpful on the fertility front. I think the conclusion that I would draw from the, both Lyman Stone's research and some other work internationally is that at the margins, these policies can be helpful. And at the very minimum, we should stop penalizing marriage like we do for working class couples with kids. And what I mean by that is that we have means tested programs, Tom, in the US, like Medicaid, for instance, or the earned income tax credit or food stamps. And these are all based upon your household earnings. And once you go above a threshold, you either lose the benefit or it starts to be, you know, drawn down. The problem, though, with that approach is that we don't really kind of have two tracks for single parents and married parents. And so a lot of working class couples kind of fall in a space where if they report their joint income, they lose the benefit. If they report just the income of mom, they get the benefit, right? So that basically penalizes marriage, encourages a decent number of working class couples with kids to... Um, you know, just to cohabit and have mom apply for a benefit. So I think that's one concrete area where hopefully kind of more libertarian-minded people and more conservative-minded people could kind of band together and realize at least we shouldn't create a system where we're systematically financially penalizing marriage here in the U.S. So that's, I think, one direction we could move forward on. But I think we also have to rec recognize and appreciate that this is a huge cultural problem, Tom. And so um, it's going to require... Changes in American education, you know, primary higher education is going to require different media coverage. It's going to require, you know, civic organizations to be more kind of aggressive. It's going to require, you know, new movies, new shows, new songs. And, you know, that, that's a tall order. It may not happen, at least in the short term. And if it doesn't, then we're just going to see, you know, I think continued decline in marriage and fertility and massive demographic changes unfolding in the United States. So um, I think we should also be kind of preparing for a much um, sort of a, a kind of a, a future where there are many fewer married adults and there are many fewer families. And, you know, recognizing that, you know, in terms of how we raise our young young adults and our kids today that they may have to approach, you know, their occupational professional futures differently with that in mind and their approach to friendship and, you know, their approach to family life, just with an eye towards a world where there could be severe constraints um, when it comes to, you know, their kids' lives that are based upon a radically dem different demographic context than the one we now you know, that, that we want to enjoy. And the point, of course, in part here is that our whole economic model is built upon growth. And that growth is built in part upon, you know, a growing population. So if population comes down markedly, you know, across the developed world, as it seems to be headed in that direction, 
that's going to have dramatic implications for kind of our our economies in ways that could be, um, you know, quite um, difficult for my kids' generation. Um, but absent some major shifts in the culture and it's um, something in public policy, I think that's where we're headed kind of right now. That That is very uh, sad. I don't even... Sad is not a necessarily a public policy term, so it's, it sort of almost defies objective analysis. But like that, that just doesn't. How did we get here? I guess that's a question. Because um, like I'm familiar, with especially the idea of like career first and family second, if family at all. You were talking about earlier about the the sort of Midas mindset, which I'm going to steal. Like that's a great phrase. But I mean, and I know Betty Friedan and the Feminine Mystique talks about. You know, women need to be liberated from the comfortable concentration camps of the home and go pursue work and then have a family so they can have it all. Um, and, you know, ideas have consequences, certainly. And that was part of a larger movement of um, various forms of sexual and uh, like gender liberation. And so ideas have consequences. But I do think it'd be a little bit lazy for me to say that, oh, you know, this one book came out and it completely transformed the way that we think about all of these things, and now we're waiting to get married uh, if we're getting married at all. So looking at maybe more demographic trends and variables, the way that you do in public policy, uh, where do you think the sentiment has come from to even be entrenched am amongst the elite mind um, and how it's taken hold of the public's mind more generally? So yeah, obviously there are some fundamental sociological kind of, you know, processes that are unfolding in late modernity. And so I think there's um, work being done by a number of psychologists in um, uh, in Southeast Asia, and, um, and I've been struck by. Let me just look, I'm going to look up one of these um, scholars here just in a second. Um, and so, for instance, I'm thinking here of work done by Amy Lim and also by her colleague Jose Yang, and they're they're based in Singapore. And what they are finding in their their research is that this kind of focus on status signaling, on materialism, on kind of making it, and of kind of like discounting marriage, and especially discounting reproduction. Um, also on kind of focusing on, you know, you're building up your own individual capacities, again, at the expense of kind of getting on with getting married and having kids, um, is particularly common in places where there is more economic inequality where there is more urbanization um, and where social media is, you know, um, strongly in play. And the point here is that these are contexts, you know, economically, geographically and technologically that heighten people's sense of status um, in a sort of inferiority, if you will. Right. Like, you know, there's always going to be someone <laughs> if you're on online constantly who is better looking, more fit more financially successful, you know, smarter, you know, more professionally accomplished than you are. And so um, there are, you know, there are kind of these deep tendencies in human beings to kind of want to get sort of situated status wise to climb the ladder so that then they can, then they can go get married and have kids. But if there's like an intense inveterate status competition going on, like in your social world, you're kind of never able to really pivot to actually, you know, getting married and having children, investing in your kids. 
So that's sort of the sociological context here. And part, of course, we could add to the secularization story here is important. Religion is a huge predictor of marriage and fertility. So less religion means less family, um, especially in the Western context. Um, and then all the, you know, a lot of the kind of ideas that were born in the 60s and 70s that discounted the value of tradition, discounted the importance of family virtues and values um, like marital permanence and, and you know, whatnot. Um, and that were kind of carried by, you know, the press and the universities and and the state in various and sundry ways. So this is all overdetermined. But the point is that there's just so many cultural and economic factors and, and legal factors, too, that are basically pushing people away from investing in marriage and having children. And what I think people don't realize is that we're going to kind of, the bill's going to come due on this, I think, in this century, you know, for a lot of societies and a lot of families and a lot of individuals. And so a lot of folks who, you know, just kind of did the sort of median thing, you know, in their society and even got married and had kids kind of, you know, played by the rules are going to be surprised to learn that they have either, you know, no grandchildren or, you know, very few grandchildren um, in the, in the new world that we're, I think, heading towards today. When you were talking about status competition, that got me thinking about another question or set of discussions that's been taking place, especially online, which is sort of the masculinity and crisis of men question. And you've written, I know, a fair bit about this. And I remember reading a book back in high school talking about how men have it hard and they're sort of opting out of marriage and a lot of uh, mainstream institutions um, you know, thinking about like the way that divorce law is stacked in favor of women, especially mothers, um, and sort of how, you know, I think it's like 90% of divorce cases where there's children, um, involved, it's like 90% custody goes to the, to the mother rather than the father. Um, and things, things like that. Uh, but mostly the discourse at the time was, was focused on like third wave feminism, me too related issues. But now come to find out in more recent years, everyone's talking about the crisis of masculinity and everyone's got opinions. And so you co-wrote an article called Where Have the Good, All the Good Men Gone? So where did they go and how pervasive is this crisis? So, Tom, one of the things that's striking to me, as I said, this helps explain my pivot from thinking just about sort of marriage and kids, thinking about more about adults not getting married today um, and why I'm concerned about that is that I regularly have young women coming into my office at EVA um, and you can kind of, there's that, that look on, on their face. Um, they're just, they're, they're worried about the future, you know, about their capacity to find a guy who's worthy of getting married to and staying married to. Um, they're worried about their, their ability to have children in the future. They don't see a lot of men in their immediate social circle kind of meet their, um, you know, their standards, their expectations. Um, so, and then we could talk about, you know, that dynamic at, at sort of ad nauseum, but I think the point I'm, I want to go to now is just to sort of stress that I think a lot of young men are not flourishing today in part because the electronic opiates that are on offer to them, you know, in terms of gaming, in terms of pornography, in terms of social media, you know, whatever, um, distract them from engaging real women in the real world. Um, also kind of distract them from actually developing hobbies and skills that would be valuable for them as men, as friends, and as potential workers. 
And then also they're obviously not doing as well in school as girls are. Um, and so they're not prepared professionally to flourish in the economy today. Um, and so I think, you know, that's part of the problem. It's, there's a technological piece here. There's also kind of a, um, a messaging problem. That is that masculinity is not kind of advanced in most sort of elite circles in any kind of constructive way. Um, so in public schools and in our institutions, in the media, you know, mainstream, you know, outlets of one or another, we don't have like a positive and clear kind of script that we're giving to young men. And so in that context, you know, some guys just sort of, you know, flounder, they've got nothing to kind of aspire to or direct them towards. And then of course, some guys will gravitate towards people like, you know, Andrew Tate, who offers a rather, um, you know, in, in many ways, toxic model of masculinity in terms of just, he's, it's all about the money and the status, the minus mindset, like I was mentioning, as well as kind of basically using and discarding women, you know, just so you can kind of maximize your status and your, and your sexual pleasure. Um, so that's obviously not, not a great thing from, you know, to take Andrew, Andrew Tate's approach either. So I think the technological shifts combined with the lack of a clear and constructive vision of masculinity has um, left many um, men kind of, um, you know, floundering in some important respect. I, I can, as a, I was, before I started at ISI, I was doing student teaching and all of the top students were girls. This was a middle school level. And a lot of the boys were on ADHD medication because they couldn't sit still for six hours sitting, doing worksheets. Um, I wonder why, but it shouldn't be sh shocking that, you know, boys like to run around or build things. Um, that's true from, I, I'm familiar with studies that show from like age one, boys think that the, the natural interests of, of the sexes are, is different. And so when your schools are stacked in particular to cater towards one sort of style, I, I don't think that's any surprise um, or we shouldn't be surprised when we see some of the, the things that we are in the schools, especially with the way the boys uh, behave and how they perform compared to the girls. But um, I think we're starting to come to the end of our time I want to go back and close on the sort of the capstone mindset or the Midas mindset where it's, you know, career first, family second. I, it sounds to me like, and this is, I guess, how I feel about it, but it sounds to me that based on our conversation, you would also agree that that's a sort of mindset that should be rejected or needs to be replaced uh, for most people. Um, what would your pitch be to people to reject that? And I would assume or imagine that it's different for men and women. What would you say to each group? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that there's kind of a, a short-term, long-term, you know, obviously piece here, kind of trying to keep, you know, the long-term horizon in, in mind here. And I think that particularly for more um, successful students and young adults, you know, who are succeeding professionally, they have some kind of either implicit or explicit appreciation for the value of sacrificing now for, you know, a professional future. Um, and they recognize you have to put in, you know, long hours in classes and homework and things like that, um, or at the office to succeed professionally. Um, and there's some idea that once you get like, you know, to maybe 45 or 50, you'll have the job of your dreams and then you'll be happy, right? <laughs> That's sort of I think, the implicit sort of 
thought that's going on here for a lot of adults today in the United States and a lot of young adults as well. So I think recognizing that there is something to that basic idea of sacrificing now for a, a better future, but just sort of saying to folks, look, what matters more is your family future than your professional future. And given that, um, you need to start investing, you know, in your, in your twenties and, um, you know, in your friendships, um, in meeting people and cultivating certain virtues like, you know, loyalty, uh, charity that would kind of then make you a good husband or a good wife. Um, so that's, that's part of the messaging that I would offer to folks. Now for guys in particular, I mean, as opposed to what Andrew Tate would say, I would just say to them, look, whatever Andrew Tate might tell you, the reality is that, you know, guys who are successfully married today have about eight to nine times the assets in their 50s as their single peers do. Uh, they're just in much better financial shape because marriage makes men behave more prudently financially in part and also work harder. So you're going to be in a much better spot financially on average if you get and stay married. Um, we know too that uh, married men have more sex than you know, unmarried men do on average, especially as they, you know, enter into midlife. Um, and, uh, we know too, that when it comes to a sense of meaning and direction, which is really important for guys to have that sense that their lives are not, you know, worthless. Um, husbands and fathers are much more likely to say that their lives are meaningful. Um, and they're about twice as happy as their peers who are not married. Um, and again, we can debate about whether or not those are pure effects or selection effects, but there's certainly, the, the general pattern here is that married men are doing a lot better on a ton of different fronts than single men. But I would also sort of say it's important to acknowledge that divorce is a threat. Um, and so I think we have to understand as guys that you need to invest emotionally and practically in your wife and your kids. Um, and also on um, being steadily employed full time. Um, and guys who do those things who are, practically engaged with their kids who are emotionally engaged with their wives and who are employed full time do pretty well when it comes to marital happiness, global life satisfaction and marital stability. Um, so there's, there's a challenge there, you know, obviously that you have to kind of um, keep your game at a certain level for the women. I think the point I would make is that, you know, there is a lot of talk today about, um, you know, freedom and work and, and all that, you know, um, kind of doing your own thing individually. Um, and again, the question is, what's the sort of the return on investment in that strategy for women? Um, and what I see empirically is that women who, again, are staying single and childless <laughs> um, are more likely to be lonely um, they're more likely to have less meaning in their lives and um, they're less happy than their peers who are married with kids. Now, the gap in some of those things can be less for women than for men. Um, and it's worth acknowledging that. Um, but I think we can't discount kind of the value of marriage and motherhood for women as a source of tremendous meaning um, and satisfaction. And there's just something about carrying a new life in you something about watching a child take a first step, you know, or in my case, I was driving my kids to school one morning and I was voice texting my wife with a couple of pedestrian to do items, you know, on, on our family list. And at the end of my voice text, my nine-year-old boy who's sitting in the back car, back of the car pipes in and says to my wife via text, 
I love you. I love you. I love you. So my wife gets a sort of generic message, you know, um, here she is, you know, working age 52, you know, it's a weekday about, you know, 7.50 in the morning. Um, and, you know, this special message from her husband. And then this, I love you. I love you. I love you is in the text. And she knows because our youngest child is so, you know, affectionate. This is coming from her, her nine-year-old son, you know? And so I don't, you just can't put, you can't put a value on that kind of thing. Right. I mean, it's just something that's, you know, you, you hit midlife and, you know, there are a lot of challenges and to have, you know, one or two or three, whatever kids or more than that in our case, um, you know, you're going to have these experiences where there's just this expression of love and devotion from a child. that's just like nothing you've experienced in life, you know, for, I think for women, I think the culture is just kind of discounting and even denying the value of these kinds of relationships between mothers and their kids that I think are so fundamental for, you know, for, uh, for us in general, but also for women in particular. Well, that's a great note to end on. I think it really is fundamental. It's what sort of society is we're going to be, what sort of society are we going to look like in maybe 30, 40 years. So thanks so much for joining me and talking about it with me today. Uh, if people are interested in following more of your work, keeping up to date with all of the things that you're talking about and following to see where, where this thing goes, where should they look? So there's a blog um, called familystudies.org that you can Google and brings you to a lot of articles on marriage and parenthood and family life, both here in the U.S. and abroad. And uh, then there's also my Twitter account, Brad Wilcox IFS, and I try to basically uh, cultivate or share, you know, um, articles and studies that may be of interest to people who have kind of got some interest in the family or marriage uh, or parenthood space. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Brad. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age articles, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.